Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With us as well, we're thrilled to bring you Ken on CFRA, of course, years of experience in looking at banks, and he's more buy, hold, sell than what Allison Williams is doing. Ken, what a bang up year last year. Can you continue to acquire shares of, this, of these banks this year? We do, but I think where all boats rose in the fourth quarter with strong stock performance for the banks, it's going to be more selective. We have an America First plan, which is really the banks like Bank of America and JP that are highly concentrated in the U.S. That's driven by the core, which is loan growth and deposits. Uh, I would not really look to the capital markets or the strong reprint for fixed income. Last year was a very weak fourth quarter. Sequentially, it's flat to down for fixed from the third quarter of 2019. So bringing it back, um, what we're continually seeing is um, flat or weakness outside the U.S. Uh, the U.S. consumer is just strong. So I think if you can drive loan growth, that offsets kind of a flat environment for rates. And if you're growing accounts by expanding into new metropolitan markets like Bank of America and JP, they are taking market share from Wells Fargo. Ken, who's having success getting the volume side of the story up? Who's delivering loan growth? Um, You know, clearly it's being driven by mortgage, auto, uh, but also, you know, what drives the U.S. economy is small business in terms of employment growth. Uh, We're also seeing households that have pretty good balance sheets compared to where we were 10 years ago. I think there's a surprise on the upside. Bank analysts are generally very conservative. They look historically at price to book. But if you have the loan growth here and you have very good credit quality, B of A said strong credit quality, and there's no distressed industry on the commercial side, you have a pretty good setting for financials, particularly banks, to do well in the market because they're underpriced relative to the market. Ken, which bank would you bet on most uh, for this year? Well, the, the buy recommendations we have, as mentioned, are Bank of America and J.P. Morgan. We mentioned it's going to be a stock-picking market. We have sales on Wells Fargo and a sell on Goldman Sachs. Morgan Stanley uh, is a hold in city as well. Uh, Wells Fargo just missed it, and I think Goldman, with the core being cyclical, volatile businesses and capital markets, they're going to have to have a great show on January 29th talking about their five-year plan. Hey, Ken, we'll talk about that Goldman call a little bit later in the program. Ken Leon of CFRA will be sticking with us. The good news this morning, the United States and China are a little bit later today in Washington, D.C. to sit around a table and sign a phase one trade deal. The bad news for investors out there, at least, is that the tariffs are expected to stay in place until after the November election. The issue for many of you I know is that it leaves too many issues with China unresolved. Weighing in on this, joining us on the phone, I'm pleased to say, is Henrietta Trace, Veda Partners Managing Partner and Head of Economic Policy. Henrietta, let's talk about it. The issues, the outstanding issues for you as we await this signing ceremony. 
Hey guys, um, yeah, the biggest surprise for me. I mean, we've we've known a couple of uh, most of these details for about a month now, but the biggest surprise came yesterday when Mnuchin and uh, USTR Lifehizer announced that there would be no upward or down or well, no downward adjustment to tariffs for more than ten months. Uh, that's different than what Lifehizer said about a year ago when he walked through the enforcement mechanism on the trade deal. He had explained to us a one, a two, and a six-month period of essentially check-ins with the Chinese to see if they were essentially adhering to the phase one deal. And last night or yesterday afternoon, they announced, you know, even if they are complying, we won't be reducing tariffs for here. And the reason that that's driving markets a bit lower yesterday is because investors have this very strong sense that the president cares deeply about the stock market in particular, not so much macroeconomic data like we're used to with earlier and previous administrations and congresses, but specifically the stock market. So the hope had been, should we get to, you know, September, October of next year, and the president needs a boost to the stock market to help carry him over in certain states to win the election in 2020, he would drop tariffs, okay. announce, you know, something else. All right. Uh, but talk, that doesn't seem likely. Let's talk about the numbers. So the U.S. agreed to have the 15 percent duties on $120 billion of imports and delay uh, it, it, others in return for Chinese promises, particularly on the infrastructure uh, subsidies and others. Henrietta, how is that palatable to the Chinese government from their perspective politically to not have these rolled back in the near future and have it delayed for so uh, for so long if it's for such political reasons as you say my understanding of the Chinese perspective is they got spooked in August that the president was really quite serious about escalating tariffs on list one through three to 30 percent rates up from 25 and then also on imposing the list 4B tariffs, which would have been $160 billion worth of additional goods shipped in from China. So their primary goal shifted away from caring about the political consequences and uh, guessing whether Trump would be reelected or not and on to how can we avoid further tariffs from here. Yeah. We need to bring in some ag, we need some pork, so let's just move this along. Henrietta, my chart of the year was customs money coming in, and it's a hockey stick, as you know, out four, five, six standard deviations. Mm. Let's back off from the math. Have tariffs worked? Um, tariffs have worked to essentially do what trade wars do, which is force losers upon everyone. Um, I think one of the big reasons why you're not going to see a lot of companies clamoring to take part in the new sort of injunction and injustice processes in the phase one deal is because at the end of the day, if they say that there's a problem and China's not adhering to phase one, what happens? Well, those manufacturers importing those same goods are going to see their costs rise. So um, I think the tariff data is proving what a lot of economists have consistently said, which is that nobody wins a trade war. This is the issue, isn't it, Henrietta? The worry that this breaks down again. How long before the United States sits there, realizes that as they have done time and time again, China's agreed to something they haven't followed through on. When you look at the agreement right now, Henrietta, the scarce details that we have at the moment before the big reveal of the 86-page document, if we do indeed get it all, what is it about this particular deal that you think the Samaria for some conflict further down the road? I think the conflict is helpfully pushed off until after the election. The White House has severely lost its appetite for further tariffs here. Um, there are, once again, calls for at least essentially 25% odds that we head into a recessionary environment in 2020. The president's largest approval numbers come from his handling of the economy. So I would not expect tariffs to rise from here, which is probably the best news that we have to look forward to. Um, but when it comes to what people are looking at, the most inbound questions I get from investors are, 
you know, specifics. What are going to be the soy commitments? What are the purchase commitments for pork? What are the purchase commitments for ethanol? None of those details are going to be forthcoming and they won't ever be released is my understanding. So the 86 page document is all fine and well. There will be some positive points. I will be monitoring what trade associations say in the aftermath, praising it or, um, you know, reserving their praise for certain parts, but not others. And what I really want to see is um, farmers and manufacturers on the ground saying we are so excited about X amount of purchases in whichever sector and get those hard and fast data points, because that's where President Trump's challengers will be focused, trying to prove essentially that the juice was not worth the squeeze on this whole trade war. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, we're no better off than we were in 2016. And those details are going to be what's reserved so that those um, talking points will never really materialize. Henrietta, always great to catch up with you. That's the view from Henrietta Trey's Veda Partners, Managing Partner and Head of Economic Policy. I do think it's really telling uh, that we have yet another consecutive disappointment in inflation data coming yes. in the United States. And this is something light. that's really, it's a little light again. Uh, this comes after the little light CPI. Are <clears throat> we starting to see a trend right. though, where people are overestimating already sluggish inflation? And what does this say? I mean, John, to your point about well. the rate cut debate heating up, I mean, this basically edifies the calls for it. I mean, to some degree, at least the Fed certainly is on hold. No? Well, let's, let's bring someone in on this, and we're very fortunate to have her. Megan Green is at the Harvard Kennedy School. We really thought she would cancel this morning because she is on the short list to replace Mr. Cora with the Boston Red Sox. She's been sitting by the phone, I know, all morning uh, waiting for the call. Mr. Cora uh, out at the Red Sox on the same idea as the Houston Astros uh, and stealing of signs. Megan Green, give us the signs on the Fed right now. Lisa Abramowitz mentions... A little dearth of inflation. Is it enough of a signal to the Fed to change ways? No, I don't think so. I don't think that this is enough of a mess to cause the Fed to think that inflation expectations are becoming unmoored. This is really just more of the same that we've seen throughout this recovery where we've just had a dearth of inflation and investors might um, overestimate it. They do it every time. It's still not coming in. So this is not a new trend at all. And I think that the Fed is probably going to stay on hold through this year unless we get some kind of serious mess. So, yes, we've got the PPI, a uh, slight miss. We've got the CPI yesterday, a uh, slight miss. Meanwhile, Target uh, kind of really driving action today with their disappointment in terms of holiday sales in the November through December period. Shares down more than 7% ahead of the market open. And I'm trying to understand how much of a signal this is that the consumer is losing steam. Can we read anything into this? No, I don't think we can read anything into, you know, one release like that. If we started to see a series of releases and retail sales really dip, then we might start well, to think that the consumer was flagging. But consumer confidence has remained pretty high. Um, and so I think so far it's too early to say that the consumer is tuckered out because, of course, the consumer is carrying this entire recovery. So once they are tuckered out, we need to worry. I just don't think we're there yet. And I, I just want to say Target, though, is not the only one. JCPenney and Kohl's previously had some disappointments as well uh, recently, although a lot of people just shrug that off because it's JCPenney and Kohl's and they've been sort of struggling for a while and their business models are under attack. But Target has been very strong and it's been growing and it's been investing in their online presence. So, you know, an increasing amount of this, at what point, I mean, if this is not enough, at what point do you start to say, wait a second, what does it say about the consumer? 
Well, I think we need to see other indicators of consumer demand turn as well. So in addition to the earnings results showing it, we need to see retail sales flag. We need to see consumer confidence start to fall. Um, And so far, those other data points aren't coming through. Um, But, you know, this could be the beginning of a turn. I wouldn't extrapolate too much just yet. After AEA, been talking to Dr. Posen of the Peterson Institute, Megan Green, about what was accomplished there, people talking about theory. Are we operating going into 2020 on sound economic theory, or is it everybody making it up as they go? What do you teach at Harvard Kennedy on that? So I'm actually doing a lot of research into this, um, and my conclusion is that a lot of our theory just doesn't work anymore. Um, a lot of the frameworks that we learned in Eco 101 yeah. just don't apply, and so I thought at AEA, actually, you know, economists were really starting to accept that. There was a really depressing consensus that we are just stuck with low growth, low inflation, yeah. and low rates for the foreseeable future. And, and that's a new consensus, I think, even though there's been plenty of evidence for it for years. Well, to rip up the script on this, and folks, this is some background, and I'll be discussing this, I hope, at Davos at a, a, a really wonderful panel. Megan Green, it's really simple. The debate was negative rates and their efficacy. What did you learn about the negative rate debate if we're making it up as we go amid slow growth? Well, so I think generally there's been a, a negative consensus about negative rates, and I think that's probably right, that, you know, if you push rates down that far, um, you're actually punishing banks, um, and you don't see any kind of credit de- uh, demand develop off the back of it. So negative rates aren't the answer, I mean, and particularly not in the U.S., um, there is kind of a consensus now that central banks can't be holding the bag for this recovery, and that's fairly new as well, so... If it's not negative rates, cutting rates, um, you know, maybe it's yield curve control. Japan's had some success with it. It could be more QE, though, in academia. I think there's a consensus that QE hasn't really helped a whole lot. Overall, I think, though, people are accepting that central banks aren't responsible for the this next downturn for combating it. And so we're going to need to see fiscal authorities step in. And there's this overwhelming consensus among lots of economists who disagree on lots of things, um, particularly the causes of all this weak demand. But the one thing that would help all of the potential causes is productive public investment. The problem there is just the political support for that um, isn't necessarily there, particularly those who are worried about blowing the budget deficit. You don't have to blow out the budget deficit to actually boost productive public investment. Megan, the longer that the central banks hold the bag, when do we start talking about asset bubbles again? It's a great question. You know, we haven't really seen asset bubbles emerge unless you argue that everything's a bubble, um, and and maybe you could. Um, but I think that where the bubble might be starting to crop up is in private markets, not in public markets, that we can all see. Um, that's possible in terms of leveraged loans. Um, you know, CLOs, things like that. But we don't have a whole lot of transparency on that. So I think that could be frothy, but it's hard to have any real sense of how to quantify it. Megan Green with us at the Harvard Kennedy School. And of course, we can talk about the specifics of market economics, but we can also talk about bigger, broader themes. Megan, this morning we saw Target deliver soggy comp sales, traditional sales, and their digital sales were up 19%. What are you seeing at Harvard Kennedy about this new technology overlaying all of our business. I mean, it's something we're going to write about in 10 years or 20 years or even half a century out. But what is the effect of technology on so much of American business, including consumption? It's 70 percent. 
Well, so I think in this example, in retail, for example, um, you know, you see that technology increases transparency and price discovery, and so that pushes prices down um, significantly. That provides a disinflationary force in the economy. And generally, technology is doing that across the board, and so that's one of the reasons that we've seen soft inflation data and will continue to for the foreseeable future. Megan, just to wrap things up here, I'm wondering, looking out, uh, where do you think we are in terms of a reacceleration or a slowdown in the global economy, just for 2020? For 2020, we're looking at a slowdown, no doubt. Um, Every major economy has been growing above potential, um, and we shouldn't expect that to continue without really significant amounts of monetary or fiscal stimulus, and I just don't think that we'll see that this year. So we should expect every major economy to continue to converge with potential growth, which has been lower than what growth has been over the past couple of years. Megan, great to catch up with you. Megan Green there, Harvard Kennedy Senior Fellow, joining us on the phone on the latest in the economic data and the next moves for central banks worldwide. Right now, Real question for investors here. You had a extraordinary 2019 in terms of market performance. What do you do for 2020? Jim Paulson, Luthold Whedon, Capital Management Chief Investment Strategist, uh, joins us uh, to give us his thoughts. So, Jim, again, it's uh, you know the question is, what have you done for me lately? How are you thinking about positioning for 2020? Yeah, Paul, I, I think you know, I, I think that. The bull continue this year, uh, but I think it's going to go up, you know, far less than it did last year. Of course, maybe more like ten percent or something overall. Um, and I do think I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I think positioning is going to be the bigger issue in 2020 than it was in 2019. Rather than just buy anything around you, I think it's going to be what to buy is going to be more important. There's going to be a, I think, a, a bit of a leadership shift. Uh, during the year, if the, if the global reco- if the global uh, recovery does revive here a little bit, accelerate a little bit, which I think is happening, uh, that tends to really change what leads. So, I think of it in the past, every time we've recovered or accelerated, you've had international markets beat the United States. I think that's going to be one of the big themes yet this year, both developed and emerging, probably more so in emerging. Uh, but I think moving away from the U.S. your stock portfolio makes sense. I also think that cyclical areas in general uh, have a much better year relative to more defensive uh, investments, low volatility, quality, defensive sectors and the like. And then I also think maybe uh, depending on how much we recover globally, you're, you're going to see small caps, which have continued to do poorly this year, but I think they're going to maybe finally have a year of outperformance um, overall, and uh, I'm I'm sticking with tech. Um, wow! But but I think that's the one area that might continue to do okay. But I think it's I think I'd go with the small cap tech rather than the large cap. How do you shift to that? I mean, are you selling shares of Apple, Amazon, and the rest of them here to do that, or is that with new cash? I think I'd uh, I, I think I definitely maybe uh, entertain some selling, Tom. Uh, there's, you know, we've in our GAT fund, we've put in uh, uh, ETF. You can, you can get an ETF for the S&P 600 uh, technology, um, you know, sell your S&P 500 tech. Um, I, I think I, if you look at that, tech, 
Small cap tech and large cap tech have done just as well in this recovery since 2009. They've had almost identical results, but they've had very different leadership periods. Sometimes large is dominant, sometimes small. In the last couple of years, it's been large. They're sitting now on a relative basis at the bottom end of a trading range they've been in relative to the large cap tech back to 2002. They're, they're trading right now at a slight discount PE multiple when they've normally traded on average at about an 18% premium. They have a much higher long-term growth rate estimate among S&P 600 technology than the S&P 500 technology has. They're certainly under-owned, unloved, and basically not even known. You probably can't name many of them. Uh, uh, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, and, and lastly, I think they're not in the... They're not in the crosshairs of uh, regulators, um, you know, uh, regulator. They're just not in the crosshairs of regulators. And no one's looking at small cap. Okay, but the, 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 Paul Sweeney, what's going to be the catalyst to jump these brilliant four-digit stock, four-letter stocks that Jim's talking about? Yeah, it's, I think it's, you know, some the, the search for top-line growth, which is something you always look for, Tom. I think top-line growth technology still has it in lots of pockets as we do a 5G upgrade as the cloud continues to grow. Jim, I'm interested in your comments about emerging markets. Tom and I are hearing more and more about emerging markets as potential opportunity in 2020. For you, is it driven more by maybe a moderating trade tensions globally or lower rates or kind of stabilizing economy? What's kind of driving your thoughts about emerging markets? I think the biggest thing is um, is a revival in growth. I mean, you're starting to see the OECD leading economic indicator for the global economy just turned up in the last two months for the first time since the end of 2017. The Westpac Global Economic Surprise Index has, has risen dramatically in the last few months. I think we're starting to see signs all across the globe of a recovery. Every time in this recovery since 2009 that you've had a bounce in global growth, emerging markets have outperformed. And I think they will again. They tend to be more leveraged to economic acceleration than is the service-based, tech-based United States economy, for example. But in addition to that, um, I do think that you know we're just juicing the heck out of uh, more cyclical manufacturing in other areas with incredibly low rates, with quantitative, yeah. with fiscal stimulus. I think it's going to going to work. I also expect the dollar to go down, Paul. Um, I've been trying. I thought that last year it didn't work. I'm going to try it again. And if the dollar does go down, that's going to boost. Yeah. Uh, some of those returns as well. Jim, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With Luftload Group, uh, Jim Paulson joining Thanks us. Thanks uh, one- I've been waiting, 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 Paul Sweeney, to speak to Mr. Shork. This, you know, you hear me, folks, talk about granular research yeah. reports. He is the king is. of granular. He knows which valve out in Kansas <laughs> on which pipeline only has three bolts and not four bolts uh, in it. Stephen, I'm going to start with a 60,000-foot question. Is the United States of America energy independent? Yeah, you know, I, I keep on hearing that, uh, especially in regard to uh, the recent geopolitical headlines yeah. and that uh, somehow uh, the United States is inoculated. Uh, you know what, Tom? Some weeks we are, some weeks we aren't. So if I can say some weeks we aren't energy independent, you know what? We're not energy independent. We have to keep in mind that we still import a considerable amount, three to four million barrels of crude oil a day. 
This is very normal. Crude oil is not a homogeneous commodity. It depends on where you, what part yeah. of the world you're taking it out of the ground. So it depends on what kind of uh, oil your refinery burns. Some of our refineries can burn the oil that we do produce. Some of our refineries have to buy oil outside the United States to keep the refineries running. We have a balanced market, but no, we are not, quote unquote, energy independent. <clears throat> if we, we cannot put up a wall and not allow yeah. any oil to come into this country. And you've got, you know, he's got a million charts, folks, from the weather maps and all that out to actually hydrocarbon <laughs> stuff. In your upper left corner, you slam it with employment in the Marcellus Shale uh, area. Where is that geographically in the United States? Is that Manhattan or is that Bronx? Uh, exactly. It's a little west of the Bronx. Okay. So, uh, so we're talking north central Pennsylvania, Susquehanna ca- County, and then western Pennsylvania, um, Washington uh, County. Uh, it extends over across the border uh, into Ohio and then uh, West Virginia. So a considerable amount. And in my report, Tom, my, my concern here, of course, is the fact that the United States is now in the industrial side of the economy is in recession. And that is to say one-eighth of the U.S. economy, steel mills, factories, so forth, we're in recession right now. Uh, and so if you've got lower demand for indu- by industrials, you have lower demand for oil. And we do have loyal demand for oil and gas and, and all sorts of energy. So my concern, living in the state of Pennsylvania, what is this doing to the employment situation, to uh, some of the really hard-hit areas in the Rust Belt that are really benefiting now from shale production? And so far, so good. The employment picture still looks uh, stable, but my concern over the next two years, as a considerable amount of debt comes due, that uh, we mm-hmm. could, uh, those counties could be in for a rough uh, outing uh, throughout 2022. Hey, Stephen, I'm looking at Brent crude here, $64.30 a barrel. And it's just a week or 10 days ago when this thing was touching 71 and change. Is that Delta simply the you know risk premium coming out of Iran? Yeah, and yes, and, and it's just it's it's mind boggling to me. If you if if you told anyone ten years ago that you can attack a major oil facility in Saudi Arabia, and three weeks later oil prices would be lower than when they were the, the day after the attack, or that we could assassinate a major Iranian official and oil would be cheaper, ten dollars cheaper today than it was right after that event, you would have you know. The, no one would have thought that possible. So the geopolitics have completely been exercised out of this market. There, there is just this overwhelming nonchalance, and it, and it is mind-boggling. And for me, it is a concern because I do think the market, I, I, you know, on this group think that we are energy independent. I do think that this market has lulled itself into this false sense of security that anything can happen and oil will continue to flow and prices will continue to remain attractive. And I think it's a dangerous game we're playing. And is that game predicated upon, Stephen, just the, maybe the market's belief that you know things are different now because of the U.S. shale output? Is that a valid point, do you think, or is that overplayed? <laughs> It, 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 is, it is part of the equation. We have to keep in mind, when we're talking about consumer behavior, elasticity of demand, you, you have two functions. You have, you have the price shock that will alter consumer behavior, but you also ha- have to have a substitute product. And up until five years ago, we didn't have a substitute product. So we do now have substitutes onto the market. And of course, I'm talking about EVs, either full EVs or plug-in hybrids, such as the Shork household has one. So, you do? Uh, my, my, you're, you're, a, you're an energy guy. You're I know. Guy. <laughs> I know, and 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 my energy consumption has has been my oil consumption has been is a fraction of what it was 
three years ago. And you know what? That is oil demand that's never coming back to the market. So every time you see a Prius or a Tesla or a Audi e-tron, that, that's yeah. demand that's never coming back onto the market. So yeah, that, yeah. that does have a big uh, impact in the long term. Steve, nobody cares. What we do care about <laughs> is at the back end of your report, Stephen Short, you've got the famous TSR weather demand recap. Yes. Come on, it's doom and gloom. You've got the coldest part of the nation is directly over Biscuit in New Jersey. We go to yep. John Tucker. John Tucker, when it really gets cold in New Jersey, do you see like ice on the beach? Oh, no. Well, you see Icebergs? in the bay, you certainly do see ice uh, where it's a, uh, an amalgam of salt water. And salt water and ice and full So it's water. brackish. Yeah, yeah it's brackish. Steve, you got, the, you got New England and the North Atlantic states in one chart, gloomy cold. And then you got the entire half of the nation, gloomy cold. How cold is cold? You know, cold, cold, you know, anything, you know, above, you know, sustained temps below freezing, you know, in, in my estimate. So if you remember, we were talking about New Jersey. If you remember that polar vortex from the 13-14 winter, you, you had icebergs coming ashore on Martha's Vineyard. You, you had the ocean almost freezing. And now salt water, for salt water to freeze, we're talking about temperatures below, water temperatures below 29 degrees. That is cold. And what's crazy about this, guys, is that we do have this cold finally now in the forecast and the one commodity that normally responds to cold weather is natural gas yeah and because we heat our homes and our businesses with natural gas and guess what natural gas is going in the complete opposite direction uh and this is a function of one uh even though you do have the weather demand what don't you have my concern we have an industrial um, recession, so you don't have that industrial side that is really keeping a lid on natural gas prices. So it's, it's interesting. So how about another consumer-facing uh, energy, mm-hmm. gasoline? Is it lower for longer just at the pump? Uh, I, do, I do believe so. I think we, we, we've settled into um, this area where and we kind of look at the options markets. And the option markets, you always want to look at the option markets because this is the insurance market. These are the guys who are signing risk of how high or how low prices will go out into the future, and then they're going to sell you an insurance policy that that doesn't happen. And what we've seen with the option markets through the first six months of this year, the option writers, the guys selling these options, are telling you that they think the ceiling in this market is between 63 and $66. This is WTI. And the bottom of the market is between 55 and 53 and so when we run our quantitative models, you know, our Monte Carlo simulations, it, it, it all kind of dovetails right into that range. So if we're, you're looking at low 50s on the, and up to the mid-60s, uh, that is stability at the pump. And that's a good thing because most producers can make money with oil in that mid-$60 yeah. range. And most consumers, or oil consumers, can certainly afford it at the pump. Stephen Short, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with the Short Group and the Short thank Report you uh, this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.